studying through the book of 1 Peter. And one of the things that we've realized as a staff team, as we've just been walking through this season and processing things, is just how many new folks, despite our current circumstance of at least until a week ago not being able to meet, but how many like new folks have joined us, how many new folks are tuning in. And, and because we are always like assimilating new folks, I thought it would be a good time as we're jumping into First Peter this morning to just kind of highlight something um, about who we are as a church family and why we do what we do um, to help you get to know us better and to get, but particularly to give a context for this morning. So it's our standard practice here at Four Oaks um, to preach through books of the Bible or at least large chunks of scripture. Um, we call that expositional preaching, meaning we want to expose the meaning of the text so that we can understand it and apply it to our lives. Um, that's, um, there's another kind of preaching called topical preaching, and that's just mean, and it can have meaning as well, where we might select specific topics that we want to talk about on a particular Sunday. And the reason we mainly kind of lean towards preaching through books of the Bible is that if it was up to us or if it was up to me, over time, I would naturally choose topics. I would choose texts that I'm most familiar with, that I'm most comfortable with, that are in my kind of my sweet spot. Um, And the same thing for us as a church. But when we preach through books of the Bible, it's, it's uncanny how God brings us to those places in his word to address the specific issues that we need to be thinking about as a church and looking to God for. Because let's be honest, there's a certain text or certain topics or certain issues that we would just rather avoid um, altogether if we possibly could. Um, there's certain texts that are uncomfortable that make claims on us. And boy, I say all that to say, is that ever true about our text this morning? Okay. Guys, we're in the middle of a national conversation about race. We're in the middle of a cultural upheaval in a lot of ways around the issues of racism and law enforcement and protest. And here we have this morning a text talking about, of all things, slavery and what it means to be a submitted sufferer. And you need to, you need to understand something. Um, we didn't plan this. Okay, we're not that stupid, right? We're not that stupid. We didn't plan this. Um, and in a lot of ways, this can sound like a pastorally tone-deaf or flippant sort of message. It strikes kind of a discordant note. And so I'm just going to be honest with you. My heart has it's been heavy this week. It's heavy this morning that I'm, I'm very concerned that I'm faithful to the text, that we say what the text says, that we rightly apply it, interpret it. I don't want it to be interpreted wrongly, preached wrongly, heard wrongly. At the same time, the more I've thought about it, the more I, I do believe this is true. That in as much as me, or maybe some of us contextually think, my gosh, why are we going there this morning? Maybe that's precisely the text that we need. Maybe in God's providence and his care, this is precisely where he wants us to go, wants us to put our, our finger right on it. And, and I think that's true. Um, because ultimately, this is not a text about slavery. That's just the backdrop. This is really a text about the gospel. 
This is really a text about what Jesus has done for us and how Peter takes this flawed, unjust societal structure at the time and he uses it to display, to give us an example of what, in fact, Jesus has done for us. And so I've entitled this sermon, A Discordant Note in the Gospel Song. Maybe there should be a question mark after that. I think we're going to find that it's actually not discordant at all. That in fact, it might just be exactly what we need to hear today. Now, here's the context. You've got to understand something, that when the gospel began to take fire and root across the ancient world, it knew no bounds. It was not just a gospel for the rich. It was not just a gospel for the powerful. It was a gospel for the poor. It was a gospel for the oppressed. It was for the rich and the poor, the upper and the lower class. It was for slaves. It was for masters. It was for everyone of every ethnic race and background. And you can imagine that as the gospel is just transforming people, it weaves its way into societal structures like the family, like the household. And as, as, as these different folks in different stations of life were coming to Christ and their hearts were being transformed by the gospel, they were asking Peter, what does it mean to be a faithful Christian in my context, in my circumstance? I'm a slave. I went to bed last night as, a, as an unsafe slave. I've woken up this morning as a safe slave. What do I do? How does the gospel apply to my life? I went to this. I went to, to bed last night, um, married and unsaved, and now I'm married and saved, but I'm living with someone who's not. God, what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to follow you as a Christian? And let me just say this: I think because of this broader context, we're going to dig into this. This is a text that hits every single one of us. Because all of us find ourselves in a place this morning in some sort of relational context that we didn't expect to be in. Or, or, or something that has sort of happened to us and sort of been beyond our control. Or an unfair, unjust um, situation that if we could change it, we would. But as of this morning, we can't. You, you, you may have like just a toxic environment at work, and you're looking for another job. But guess what? You don't have one for tomorrow morning. <laughs> tomorrow morning, you've got to go to that job. And this is, I think, the, the kind of milieu that Peter is speaking into. And there's going to be three points that we want to hit on this morning, okay? And here, and here we go. Number one, who is Peter talking to? Who, 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 who are these people these servants, so to speak. Who is Peter talking to? Number one. Number two, what is he telling them to do? And then number three, why is he telling them to do it? Okay, should be very straightforward. What is he, who is he talking to? What's he telling them to do? Why is he telling them to do it? And then we want to pray, guys, for God's help that he will just weave his word into our hearts this morning. Let's, let's commit our time to him. Lord, I'm asking for your help this morning. I'm fully acknowledging that um, 
my knowledge and experience and background and study is, is limited. And because of that, there's, there's opportunity for Satan to exploit. There's opportunity for me to misspeak. There's opportunity for us to wrongly hear. There's opportunity for us to wrongly apply. But nonetheless, Lord, we think that we know. We know your spirit is more powerful than that. And that this is your word and that you've given it to us and that you've given it to us this morning for a reason, for a purpose. And so, Lord, we're asking for your help as we dive into it now. And, Lord, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Who exactly is Peter talking to? Look at verse 18. He calls them servants. And the literal word in the Greek is oikotai. It sounds like something from a Lord of the Rings movie, doesn't it? And, and oikotai is actually, how, it literally means household servant or household slave. Now, one of the things that you need to know is that one of the most common designations of slaves or servants in the New Testament is the Greek word doulos, okay, or douloi. In fact, oftentimes the New Testament writers, Paul, for example, will start his letters by saying, I am Paul, a what? A doulos of Christ, a slave of Christ. But here, Peter uses the word oikotai, and oikotai is a subset of a Doulos, okay? A doulos was a, a slave in general, and Okatai was a particular kind of slave. In this context, a slave or servant who <clears throat> served in a household, who, who was part of a familial structure. So, so understand that in, in, in Greco-Roman households, it wasn't simply the nuclear family. Right? It was aunts and uncles and cousins, and it was the, the people that you see once a year at Thanksgiving and are glad you don't see anymore. They saw them all the time, right? And so they're all under one roof, and all of a sudden people begin being saved left and right, and it's confusion, chaos, and Peter's speaking into this. Now, three elephants in the room, okay, in the, for this text, three elephants, okay? Um, the things that are just like, as 21st century Americans, we immediately think about when we read a passage like this. And I want to just kind of try to address them head on. Elephant in the room number one, Pastor Paul, what kind of slavery is this, right? Because when we think about slavery, we obviously think about American slavery, um, which was a horrific abomination. It was chattel slavery. It was based upon race, where people were... um, were pieces of property where almost always they had zero chance for freedom. And while there are certainly, in the Greco-Roman world, there were some similarities to this, there were many more dissimilarities. So, so let me d- explain what I mean by this. Because you know, there was, of the, the population in the Roman Empire, which was about 200 million, 50 million or a quarter people, of all people were slaves. They served in all facets and spheres of society. They were part of the professional class, like doctors, lawyers, civil servants. They were parts of households. They were builders. They were constructors. Um, While some were born into slavery, many others chose slavery or or being a bond servant as their willing profession out of financial necessity. We have to remember, there was no such thing as capitalism. 
There was no, no such thing as free market trade or economy, or at least in the form that we know it. And, and so, so slaves looked at being, uh, entering servitude as a way of bettering themselves and moving themselves professionally, quote-unquote, through the ranks. And some of them got to the end of their indentured servitude, decided to stay on as a part of that family. Others had worked their way um, up the ladder, so to speak, and were able to purchase their freedom. Okay? This doesn't mean that, that slavery was not in a horrific abuse at the time. It was in many, many ways. But we just need to understand what the kind of slavery that Peter is referring to is not necessarily or is in many ways dissimilar to what our experience is here in this country or in our culture. So that's elephant in the room number one. Elephant in the room number two. Well, oh, that's great, Pastor Paul. But why doesn't Peter just, and the other scripture writers, for example, just advocate for abolition? Why don't they just say, listen, we, we know where this is all going, that the gospel is going to transform relationships. Be done with this. And the reality, okay, is in the, and the reason is out of love. And let me explain what I mean by that. At the time, slavery or bond servanthood was such an ingrained part of the culture for hundreds, if not thousands of years, that the gospel writers knew there was very little hope that, uh, that slavery would be abolished in their lifetime. In fact, it was going to take hundreds of lifetimes, wasn't it? It's going to take hundreds of lifetimes. And they understood that to revolt against slavery just meant certain death. It meant certain suffering. I mean, you can read the history of Rome and realize it is the, is the putting down of one slave revolt after another. And they understood, and this is, this is really, really important. There's, there's a principle here. There's a gospel principle here that's important for us to understand is that in a lot of ways, it would have done them little good just simply to say, to tell everybody, abolish slavery. Why? Because it wouldn't have addressed the fundamental issue that had given rise to slavery in the first place, and that's the corruption of the human heart. It is, it is the, the sort of the pattern of the gospel writers as they are writing to go straight to the heart to say, you know what, the only way societal structures are changed, the only way, by the way, family structures are changed, the only way any of our existing structures are changed for good, for radical good, for gospel good, is when people's hearts are transformed. And this is why, and a good example of, we see in this is in the Gospels when the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, in Matthew, and said, Jesus um, is divorce okay? And Jesus says, no, divorce is, is not okay. This wasn't the way God originally intended it, okay? It was one man, one woman, Moses said. And then they said, well, then why, Mr. Smarty Pants, did, did Moses say it was okay to divorce and gave people a certificate of divorce? And what does Jesus say? He says, he only did that because of your hardness of heart. That in reality, this is not the way you were made. This was not the way we were created to be. It was supposed to be one man and one woman. And, and what is, what's happening now is that I've come to subvert okay, the human order by changing hearts and lives. That was just an accommodation for the time being. 
And we can see how this was the issue with slavery. And the New Testament points to this repeatedly over and over. What does Paul say? Slaves, if you can get your, if you can get your freedom, by golly, get your freedom. We, we see Paul writing to Philemon. Remember, Onesimus was Philemon's slave. He had escaped. He'd run away. He had become converted. He came into Paul's orb. And what does Paul tell Philemon? He says, listen, Philemon, I know he's your servant. But more importantly, he's your brother in Christ. So take him back. We take him back as your brother. He's no longer your slave. And we can see where this subversive effect of the gospel began to take root gradually over time in the church so that virtually within a few hundred years, slavery is virtually abolished from Christendom, right? Because people understood that my primary unity as a human being with you is based upon my identity in Christ. It's based upon the gospel. It's based upon being a fellow image bearer. Peter is just addressing people who, again, Pagan one day, save the next. What do I do now, Peter? What do I do now? I know you could advocate for my freedom, but like tomorrow, I've got to get up and serve. I've got to get up and go to work. I've got to get up and be in the station that you've called me. Third elephant in the room, and then we're going to move on. Who does this text apply to then, Pastor Paul? Who does this text apply to? Because clearly we're not in that sort of culture. We're not in that sort of um, context. But see, oh, I think in principle, many of us are. And here's what I mean. Think about all of the various relationships in your life where you have some sort of obligation, some sort of responsibility, some sort of a duty. You're under authority in some sort of context. It can be legal it can be in business, or you're a boss, or you're an employee, or you're a teacher, or you're a student, or you're a law enforcement officer. And culturally, society, there are duties, responsibilities that bind us all together. All of us, see, are part of some sort of structure, relationship like that. And let's be honest, not all of them are working the way they should. Not all of them are everything we hoped and we would dream. And that's what's happening in this, in this context. There are slaves that are suffering unjustly. Hey, look at verse 18. Your treatment is unjust. Verse 19, there are sorrows and suffering. Verse 20, there is mistreatment. And so as we're walking through this text this morning, I want you just to begin to think about and contextualize for yourself what are some of those places that you find yourself in today where you're thinking, you know, I'm in this, I'm in this position and it is just fundamentally unfair. My treatment as a student in this class is just wrong. I'm picked upon and ostracized because of my beliefs. Maybe you're stuck in a toxic work environment. Maybe you're in a marriage, and not an abusive kind of marriage, but just a marriage that's kind of meh, right? And you're like, God, I want this to change. I want it to get better. I want to grow. But guess what? It can't happen this second. So God, I need to know what to do. 
to be faithful to walk in the pattern of the gospel. And I would venture to say if we went around the room this morning, which we're not going to do, and took a show of hands or took a survey, this is going to land upon all of us in some way. So who is Peter talking to? He's talking to you. He's talking to me. Number two, what is he telling us to do? What's he telling them to do? Look at verse 18. We saw this word from last time. It's the consistent theme of Peter's admonitions to these different groups in the church. He says, be subject. Now, the literal word is to submit. It means to come under, to put away your rights willingly. And let's be honest, submission is a dangerous word in our culture. Um, It can, let's be honest, um, be a substitute for things like power and exploitation, injustice. It can often be code language for oppression. And one of the things that that we have to, before we we just immediately dismiss that and just say, yeah, 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 we, we got that, we know that, before we kind of move forward into understanding what that word really means and how it really applies to us, we, we have to speak to our, our cultural moment, guys. We have to speak to our cultural context. That this is a word and this is a passage that's been used not just by Americans, okay, in our culture to perpetuate a history of slavery and racism, but it's been used by self-professing Christians, People who knew better. People who had been grounded in the gospel. You know, after we had finished watching all the movies on Netflix during the pandemic, and I mean like all 10,000 of them, looking for something else to watch and, and came across Harriet Tubman. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a fantastic, it's a fantastic movie. Totally recommend it. Great parents, great teaching tool. Great teaching tool. She's running the Underground Railroad, but there's a powerful scene towards the beginning of the movie where Harriet and her family live on this plantation in the South. And it's Sunday. And as any good Christian would do, these masters had their slaves dress up in their Sunday best to come into worship where they were pastored and preached to by an African-American pastor, a fellow slave. And this poignant scene shows this pastor teaching them from guess where? It's one, of the, it's one of the slave master passages in the New Testament. And he's exhorting them. He's, he's, he's rebuking them that they need to submit, they need to obey, they need to, they need to walk in these ways. And we just want to say right off the top, guys, that is a wicked application of this text. It's wicked. It's onerous. It's particularly because it was perpetuated by the very people who grew up hearing and embracing the gospel. And I say all that to say is that this, before we talk about what it means, you can't use this text to perpetuate injustice. That's not Peter's intention. You you can't look at George Floyd's situation and say, how horrific, but he was just suffering for doing what is right. No, 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 no. There there was no biblical obligation for anyone to submit to that. It was wicked. It was unjust. Again, we are to use, when we have them, all of the available means that we have to pursue justice, to pursue biblical justice, to pursue righteousness. 
Again, Paul says, slaves, when you have recourse for justice, take it. But that's another sermon. That's not this sermon. See, in this context, Peter's saying, what do you do when you have no choice? What do you do, Christian, when you're a part of some, whether it's unjust capital U or little u, whether there's injustice capital I or little i? What do you and I do? God, and I think this is going to be Peter's point, is calling all of us within the context that we find ourselves in, ready, to be a submitted sufferer. He's calling us to be a submitted sufferer. Look at verse 21. He says, for to this, now what is this? He means submission, okay? Verse 20, that's what it's referring back to. For to this, you have been, what? Called. That's, that's a strong word. It means to be appointed. It means to be set apart to do something. So, so it, it's very interesting language. Peter is saying this isn't just happenstance. Actually, what's happening to you right now and your response to it is going to follow a biblical gospel pattern. And Peter says, here's what I want you to do. If, for those for to this you've been called, to listen, because Jesus Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 20 says it this way. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. And again, that word endure means to stay, means to remain, to persevere. And naturally, their first question would be, well, what does that look like, Peter? And you might be asking, what does that look like for me? Where do I go? Where Where do I go for a model for this? And again, verse 21 tells us, Peter says, let me give to you, gentlemen and ladies of the jury, exhibit number one, Jesus, who is an example for you to follow. Now, that word example, it literally means pattern or to trace out, kind of like a sheet of tracing paper where you sketch out something. If you're not artistic like I am not artistic, it's kind of a cheat sheet, right? So I learned this about this on, on a firsthand level. When, when I was 20 years old and falling in love with my wife, and she perceived that I was exactly what I was at the time, which is a college student eating pizza, watching TV. That's generally what it was. I wanted to show my kinder, gentler, more in-touch side. And so and this is my first public admission of this. Well, 9 o'clock service. But second public admission of this, I learned to cross-stitch. And I learned to cross-stitch from her roommate. I saw a little, little cross-stitch thing that was in her apartment, and I was like, oh, I bet Susan would like that. And, and hey, Beth, why don't you, like, can you help me do a cross-stitch? And she's like, well, why don't you, instead of me doing the cross-stitch, you do the cross-stitch. And so I would go up. This was Susan's roommate at a later time. And they, I would go up to her apartment, and we'd sit there, and she would, she would teach me this. And I think we still have that somewhere um, which you'll never see. But anyway, so, but it was actually very good. And I think it kind of worked. But nonetheless, when, when, when I was learning 
Beth didn't just tell me how to do it. She did that. And she didn't just show me how to do it, okay? She did that. But she actually gave me a pattern to follow, right? Something to put underneath that thing and whatever that's called. And I did it, and I just followed the lines. I connected in it. I don't want to say it was easy, but at least it was clear, right? I had a pattern. Now, Peter highlights a pattern for us in this text. And he goes all the way back in talking about Jesus, and he applies Isaiah 53 to Jesus. Remember, or or to this circumstance. Remember, Isaiah 53 is the great suffering servant prophecy. We, We do it every Christmas, right? But do you know that Peter is the only scripture writer in the New Testament to explicitly identify Jesus with this suffering servant? And the, and the idea here is that Jesus is like a lamb that's being led to slaughter. And as he's being led to slaughter, understand, unjustly, without provocation, he is without sin. Look back at the text for a second. Look what it says, Peter says, that, he, that Jesus did not do. He did what? Not retaliate. He did not strike back. It says instead he entrusted himself to God. Now, what does that mean, he entrusted himself to God? See, when we think about I entrust something to you, it's like I delegate a task, right? I entrust this to you. Go do it. Take care of it. Don't worry about it. I don't have to think about it anymore. That's not the nature of this word. It's a verb. It's a participle. It denotes ongoing action. It means... That at every, do you realize that at every step of Jesus' ministry, he had to continually entrust himself to God actively, moment by moment, decision by decision. And one of the things that you and I have to understand is that that submission, okay, giving up our rights, setting aside our prerogatives, it doesn't mean there's not a time to fight for justice. Paul says when you can, do, but sometimes we can't. Peter's going to tell us that the key to this is understanding this is not merely a one-time decision. Oh, I wish it was, don't you? I wish it was. I wish you could just decide, yep, Lord, I'm going to submit. I'm going to give that to you, and now I, don't, now I can go off and do whatever I want to do. No, no, that's not what it means. It means moment by moment, we are continually, decision by decision, we are bringing our hearts We are bringing our fears. We are bringing our anxieties. We are bringing our rights, our anger, right? Our privileges, all of those things. And we are laying them down before Jesus. And we're saying, Jesus, do with them what you will. Even if none of these things are fulfilled in this situation, I give them to you. You know what is best. You do what is right. And let me just mention like two specific application points as we head down the home stretch here. Just two specific application points. I want to talk about our cultural moment. I want to talk about our personal moment. Because our cultural moment, you may not, depending upon your background, fully understand what your brothers and sisters in Christ of color are going through right now. Maybe you... 
Now, maybe because of your background, you could fully relate to what's happening culturally right now. Others of you may like, you cannot relate at all. And we have to say, what does this passage mean for us? Okay? What does that passage mean for us? What does submission look like for me? I think part of submission here is not standing upon the way that we've been discipled by talk radio or our political affiliation or the news or social media, but instead saying, you know what? I'm going to listen to my brother. I'm going to listen to my sister. I want to understand their perspective. We'll talk about this next week, but it's like, husbands, when your wife has an issue with you, okay, or your marriage, a good, thoughtful, faithful husband is going to listen is going to try to understand that, is going to be curious, is going to draw his wife out. And in the same way, sometimes what submission might mean for us this season is for the sake of your brother, for love out of him or her, seek to understand, seek to listen. I'm not saying agree or disagree or anything. I'm just saying listen. I had a close family, I do have a close family friend. And to call him and just, I listened. I asked questions and I listened and I learned. And so for some of us this season, it's just like, just get, get off the platform, okay? You don't have to be right. You don't have to convince everybody. And I, I say that wherever you fall on this, just submit yourself to the Lord and listen. That's our cultural moment. Number two, our personal moment. Let me just try to make it nitty-gritty for right where you are. Guys, submission isn't easy. If it was, everybody would be doing it, right? See, the battle, though, for submission is not always global or societal or cultural like it is today. So oftentimes, the battle for submission is where? It's in the battlefield of your heart. It's as we die a thousand small deaths a day as we entrust ourselves to God in our marriages, in our jobs, in our organizational relationships, in our duties and responsibilities and obligations for each other. It's just like driving. Think about this. If you're on the road today, don't be out there in the rain, but you get it. If you're on the road, but don't stay here. You got to drive home after. You get where I'm going. But if you're out on the road, could you imagine if every driver just decided, I'm going to exercise my rights to the fullest no matter what? Even if that car is running the red light, I, I have a right to go out in that intersection, don't I? It, it, it's my right away, but it's also your right away to be killed when you do that, right? You, you are constantly, right, having to submit yourself for the good of other people. So we know it's not easy. It, it requires a thousand deaths a day. But what I want to encourage us this morning is, is this even a category in your heart? Is this a category in your life? Is this even part of your decision-making process as you're thinking about what could I do to reframe that and make it, but what should I do? Lord, what are you calling me to here? Maybe you're just calling me to be quiet. You know, maybe you're just calling me just, you know, not to go there. There's a time to go there, guys. I know this is hard. It's complicated. I can't give you all the answers in this amount of time. 
But I do want to point out, and this is our last point, we're done. What happens when we do this? And this is the last point. Why is he telling them to do it? We're going to make this short. Quite simply, this is the way you and I adorn the gospel. Quite simply, when Paul tells us to live a respectable and honorable life, or Peter tells us to live a respectable and honorable life, he tells us submission is the key that unlocks all of these things. And interesting, the way that he describes this, look at verse 19, he says, for this is a gracious thing. Again, it's a beautiful thing. It's an outwardly attractive thing. It's a stupefying thing, isn't it? It's a stupefying thing when Christians walk in this way. I saw a little video of, of George Floyd's brother this morning who's, I believe, a Christian. And he's talking, I mean, he's protesting, he's there, he's standing up. He's like, we have to fight injustice. But he said something very interesting. He's like, but, but no violence, no more, none. When in, of all people, right, of all people, he would be the one, could be the one to say, you killed my brother, now we want to kill you. You, you, you trampled on his rights, now we want to trample upon yours. He had every right, humanly speaking. But when he doesn't, when he says it, you can just see everybody in the crowd. They're just like, they don't know what to do with it. They're befuddled. They're, they're perplexed. They're, they don't have a category because it's a gracious thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a lovely thing. Submission, it's not so much that it's a, just a dirty word in our culture. It's a foreign word. We don't understand that. But when we do that, Christian, we are displaying Christ. Look in verse 24, and this is it. It says, he submitted his life for us. He bore himself our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For you were straying like sheep, verse 25, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, this was the path of Jesus so that we might know him. And when we embrace the gospel, when we embrace submission, we embrace the gospel. As it's fitting that we're going to end this service by taking the Lord's table his supper together the lord's supper means many things but one of the things that it fundamentally means is that we have nothing more in common than one another than our relationship with jesus christ if you're professing christ this morning his spirit lives within within you and not just living within you personally he lives within all of us together as his body as his church family that's what unifies us. And that unity is most poignant when we come to the table together.